Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Today's program was brought to you by MailChimp. More than 6 million people use MailChimp to design and send email marketing campaigns. MailChimp's new automation features make it easy to provide timely, relevant information to your customers and prospects. Learn more at MailChimp.com slash automation. Grace Bonney, host of Heritage Radio Network's own After the Jump, knows what it takes to build and maintain a successful brand or business while consistently finding inspiration along the way. In this monster mashup of After the Jump episodes, listen in as Grace dishes out tips and tricks of the trade with enlightening ideas on how to rediscover your voice and translate it into a consistent presence in your brand or business in episode 67. Next, episode 70 tackles the troublesome concept of procrastination and how to get the most out of your day. While we round out this monster mashup with a lively discussion on growth, transition, and integrity in episode 79. But first, enjoy episode 67, Expressing Your Voice Through Social Media. So for today's show, I'm going to tackle three different topics. First, how to find and rediscover your voice. Two, how to translate that voice into a consistent visual presence and voice. And then how to vary your content from channel to channel to keep readers interested and engaged in all of your content. The first thing to tackle is really about finding and rediscovering your voice. So whether or not you're doing this for the first time or this is something you're doing again and again every year to stay in touch with what's important to you, I find the easiest thing to do is to ask yourself a series of questions. And those questions are really about getting at the heart of what you care about and what's important to you. And these are the five questions I ask myself. The first one is, what makes you happy? The second is, what makes you angry? The third is, what inspires you to do something? And then what are you most proud of? And the last one is what comes most naturally to you? The answers to these questions are the things that are going to help you find your voice and find not just what you're passionate about, but what really sets you apart. And these days, nothing is more important than finding those key elements that show people what's different about you, your voice, and what you believe in than the other people that they're going to see flooding all of their different feeds. So it's important to address these questions in the beginning, obviously. Um, but it's also just as important to revisit and re-answer these questions as you go along because you and your voice are going to grow and they're going to change as time goes by. And so these are just really great touchstones to revisit as you get older and as your business grows. And I think there's something underneath all of these questions that's really important to think about. It's really good to keep in mind that when you're finding your voice, you're really not trying or you're to find the voice that's anything other than your own. You're really not trying to find what's most popular or what's most on trend. You're trying to find the most authentic and accurate version of your voice at this time. Why? Because you're not trying to get everyone in the world to follow you. For starters, that's impossible. But also, what you're really trying to do is find the people who share your views, your values, and your interests. That's how you build a supportive community and a community of people who, you know, don't who know who you are and they're coming because they love you. They're not coming because you're hitting on all of the latest trends, all the latest buzzwords. Instead, you're building a community and a support system of people who really care about the things you care about. And of course, there are going to be minor differences 
differences of opinions and people are going to have new things you haven't heard about in that community. But what's happening is you're building up a supportive community of people who understand the same things you do and they view the world the way you do. And it can seem appealing to try to grab everyone out there and bring them over to your platform. But it becomes trickier when you have a large, large, large amount of people reading because they're coming from all different walks of life. And it's much more difficult to sort of get your message across to those people than it is to just really find your core group of people. So just keep in mind that you're not looking for everyone to read your blog. You're just looking for the people who believe what you believe and who resonate the same things with you and in the way that you see the world. The second thing I want to talk about is how you translate your voice into a consistent visual presence and a consistent voice. Why is this important? First, if you like it or not, the online community and not just the online art and design community, every online community is an increasingly visual one. All of the quickly growing online platforms are moving straight towards giving people more room to share and customize photos and images rather than more room for text. So while it's increasingly important to show people, you know, what you have to say and how your voice is important, it's even more valuable to show people what your visual representation of that is. And this is important for you because it teaches you the common string that runs between your content and how you hold on to that and stay true to it. So how do you find that visual string? I think there are two really important things to do. And the best news is they're both free and they're both easy to do. The first thing you want to do is start a Pinterest account and create a pin board. Now, if you're not familiar with Pinterest, Pinterest is just simply a platform that is free and lets you create sort of online scrapbooks of images that you either upload or find elsewhere on the internet and sort of curate them based on themes. I always suggest that in order for, to find your consistent aesthetic, you want to create a couple different folders. Create a folder of photography, a folder of graphics and text, and this can be literally just like beautiful graphic representations or fonts, or it can be actual sayings and inspirational quotations you find. A folder of people that inspire you, places, patterns, colors, or color palettes. And I think these are very interesting and very quick ways to sort of look at consistently the things that you really love, things you're drawn to, and things that inspire you. I do this every couple of years. And even though I'm somebody who works in sort of an aesthetics business, I find that the older you get and the more that you see out there, your aesthetic is changing without you really realizing it. And if you don't take a chance to kind of update and really group these things together, your aesthetic gets a little muddied. And that comes across to an audience, even in the most subtle of ways. And when you're dealing with a community where there's so many options for people to read and for things to buy, you really want to be able to stand out as someone who has a clear and consistent vision. So start by creating those Pinterest boards. The next thing is, is a bit more sort of esoteric and emotional, but equally important. And that's to create an actual mood board or vision board. And this you're doing in person with your own two hands. You're not using Pinterest for this. And I've talked about vision boards on Design Sponge um, and on the radio show a bunch of times. And vision boards are basically, they sound a little hokey, but they're very, very helpful. You're going to take a piece of poster board or foam core, anything like that. And what you're going to do is just grab a stack of magazines or any other sort of visual material that you don't feel bad about cutting out and pasting onto the board. And without thinking about it, you're going to go through pages and pages of catalogs or magazines or anything else you can get your hands on and just start tearing out and cutting things that sort of call to you. You don't have to think about why they're calling to you. You don't need to start it with sort of a predestined idea of what you're going to be cutting out. What you're doing is just pulling things that sort of grab your eye or grab your attention for a minute, cut them all out, and then put them in front of you on the board and then start pasting them or taping them into place in 
areas and ways that feel right to you. And don't overthink this. I find that they are most successful when there's so much less thought and more just sort of responding to your gut level feeling about the way this image interacts with another one or maybe a way a phrase you've cut out interacts with the picture. Glue them all together and then sit back and look at them. I find what you're discovering is you find your overall goals and hopes very quickly. And I've done this a few times now, and I know it sounds like a little out there and like woo-woo and all that sort of stuff, but it's actually incredibly helpful. And I found that a lot of times when people are trying to plan for their business, they really stay in these very cerebral sort of, you know, clear, like professional places when they're trying to plan, but it's totally okay to let your brain and sort of the emotional part of you get involved in the planning of your business. So you're creating pin boards and then you're going to create vision boards. And what you're going to get out of that is a very clear visual representation of the things that you care about, what's exciting to you, how you're defining your personal style, and then also what your goals are. And it can just be for a year. You don't have to plan out the five years of your business and what's going to be important to you. What you really need to focus on is how these plans are going to help you coordinate your message to everyone out there listening. Now, the third thing to think about is how you're going to create all of this different content from channel to channel in order to keep your readers interested and engaged in everything that you have to say. Now, before I dive into all of these, because there are a lot of platforms that anyone online has to deal with these days, I want to sort of get out a caveat, which is all of these things are incredibly important to do if you're somebody who wants to run an online business of any sort, or if you want to have an online component to your brick and mortar business. But none of them are 100% necessary. There are plenty of examples of wonderful businesses that do not have an Instagram feed or do not have a Twitter feed or don't use YouTube. And that's completely okay. But these radio shows and everything that I'm about is all about giving you every possible tool for success. So please don't take this as something that you have to do. And that if you don't do one of these, your business is somehow going to fail or that your blog will fail. But they're really just all of these different avenues that give you a place to find your voice and find a way to express it that's most comfortable and most authentic for you. So I want to run down what the platforms are that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about blogs. We're going to talk about Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and Foursquare. I'm going to break them all down and talk about why they're important and why they're great options for you. You don't have to try all of them, but I think if you're someone who's interested in being an active member of the online community, having a presence in all of these different places and having a presence that's a little bit different is important. Before we dive in, I want to explain why it's important to have a slightly different presence. I find every time that I talk about this, people who are already doing it immediately nod their head and understand why it's important to have something a little bit different on all of these channels. And people who haven't done it yet kind of roll their eyes and groan and go, oh my God, that's so much different content to have to create for so many different platforms. But I find if you think about it less of like a chore and more of an opportunity to really find different ways to express your voice and even learn new things and meet new people, it becomes much more of an interesting open door and much less of a to-do list that you have to check off. So as we go through the platforms, just keep in mind, if these are things that sound interesting and exciting to you, then dive into them. If it doesn't sound exciting to you in the least bit, then just put it on a list for later. You definitely don't have to do every single one of these. So to start, I want to talk about blogging really quickly. This is obviously something that I think most people are very familiar with by 2014. But there are a couple things to think about when expressing yourself and finding your voice for 2014 and this sort of new online community that are important. The first is every blog has to be mobile friendly. And I totally fought this for years, but it's incredibly important. And you know it's important when Facebook redesigns everything and makes their layout really boring and really simple, but they do that for the reason that it's mobile friendly. 
everyone is using mobile applications, whether they're reading on their smartphone, reading on a tablet. Um, everybody's trying to consume content in a way where it is visually stripped down a bit and much more about the photos and just small bits of text that are being shared. So if you have a blog that's incredibly complicated and that isn't easily translated into someone's smartphone or into somebody's tablet, keep that in mind. These days, I feel like every blog redesign, and including us, we're working on the same thing, a redesign that's more of like a make under than a make over, that's the reason. Everybody is trying to move into something that's simple and easy to digest no matter where you are and how you're reading something. So if you're starting a blog for the first time, it's great. It means you don't have to invest in something incredibly complicated and customized with all these texture and different layers of things. You can kind of keep things stripped down or script down and simple because people are just going to be seeing the images. They're really not going to be seeing your homepage as often as they used to. For that reason, it's also incredibly important to integrate every different social channel that you're participating on into your main page. What does that mean? That basically means use every widget available from all the social channels. They give you all those things. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They're going to give you very quick, easy widgets to install into your blog that make it easy for readers to see what the address for all of your different social presences is, and then also what you've updated there lately. So if someone's logging onto your blog for the first time or for the 10,000th time, they're going to be able to see, oh, look, this person's also updating in these five different places, and there's content here that I'm not seeing on this main blog. Or it also just gives them a way to see that you have an interest in other things that you're not posting just on the main site. Now, I used to think of this as sort of a watering down of a voice. And I thought, well, this seems bad to have all these different places people can get different types of content. But online readers have proven just through their traffic and the way you can track them with simple statistic trackers, people actually want lots and lots and lots more content. The online community is so hungry for information and different types of it, they don't care if you offer them 10 different things. What they do care about is that they can easily pick out who you are in each of those channels. So that's why we're really stressing consistency here. So you're going to integrate social. You're going to make your site mobile friendly. The last thing you want to do is think of your blog as a place where you can offer a grab bag of different types of content. If you think about social platforms like Twitter and Instagram, you really only have one level of content you can give people. It's quick. It's like a bite-sized thing. It's a little bit of like candy content. It's short. It's a picture. It's maybe like a tagline or even just a hash, hashtag of some sort, but you're not giving anybody really in-depth content. There's not a lot of audio. There's not like a huge essay, but people still want to read things like that. They just want to be able to control when and how they read it. So think of your blog as the place where deeper, richer, longer content can live, but you also want to show people in that platform that you're also offering sort of smaller bite-sized things. So your blog is sort of the folder where everything lives. So that's what to keep in mind when you're talking about blogging. The next thing I want to talk about is Instagram. And the reason I want to talk about Instagram and the reason I seem to always talk about Instagram these days is that it is such a quickly growing platform for not just the creative community, but every community. It's huge for food people. It's huge for writers. Um, it's become so fascinating because people are finding ways to express themselves visually, even if they're not somebody who works in a visual medium per se. And I think the reason this is so important is that it's a wonderful place to test out what people like from your brand and from your voice 
visually. Now, that may seem sort of difficult to connect initially if you're someone who writes or you're somebody who has like a radio show where you're worried so much with your voice and your written word, but it's actually pretty easy to translate those things into a visual form. I find that if you're somebody working with text, something that's become incredibly successful for Instagram as well as um, a platform like Pinterest is to come up with sort of simple visual images. And that can be a simple graphic that's just text. Maybe your text is laid over some sort of beautiful photograph or your text has some sort of fade and it's coloring. Use that simple text like a pull quote from something you've written or something you've said and post that on Instagram. It is text, but it's also a very simple visual representation of what you're doing. So Instagram is becoming this tool to make sort of a snapshot of what you do. And it's not just a snapshot. It's not just some sort of quick off the hip thing. Instagram has become a place where people really invest in photography. They think about composition. They think about color. They think about pattern. And it's not a very quick sort of off the the cuff thing. It really is planned out. And I'm finding that most bloggers are kind of reinvesting in learning photo tools and learning to take better photographs because the Instagram community, especially those people participating in the even smaller subset of the Visco Cam um, community, those people really, really care about the way the photographs look. And they're not updating 20 times a day. They may just update once a day, but it's going to be a beautiful photo where they've thought about the composition and the layout and thought about the way the light is hitting something. So when you're expressing yourself here, try to find a way that expresses yourself visually. And then also really think about that visual because that visual is sort of the one little thing that is representing everything you're saying. So don't feel the need to update a million times here. Just feel the need to really think about how that visual comes across and how it best represents your voice. I think Instagram is also a really great place to experiment with content that is unique to this platform. I've been playing around with creating sort of short videos, sort of slash slideshow things that have little quick songs attached to them. And I find that they're a fun way to give people a peek into something that maybe lives in its full form over on your blog or over on another platform. And even if you're running a magazine or something where you have printed content, Instagram is a great way to sort of preview that content in a creative way. So people get a little taste of it, but then also get the information that it's available in full form somewhere else. So keep that in mind. The next thing I want to talk about is Twitter. Interestingly, research is kind of showing that Twitter is something that's maybe not picking up as a traffic driver in the same way that it used to be in terms of driving traffic back to your homepage. But it is a really great place to just share inspirational things. And one thing that's so important for your voice is that your voice isn't important just to promote whatever your main project is. Your voice is important in terms of showing who you are as a full person with many different interests and many different inspirations. I think Twitter these days is most successful when it's used to share short, inspirational, even like quippy little bits of information that pertain to things you're interested in, but maybe aren't directly tied to your main project, whether that's a store or a product line or a blog, whatever it is. This is a great place to just show who you are, what you think is exciting or funny or interesting. And if you happen to have any sense of humor or a humorous writer, Twitter has become sort of the go-to platform for anybody who's funny. You don't have to be a comedian, but if you feel like you want to kind of be a bit more casual and a bit more loose and open and funny with your audience, this is a great place to do it. You have 140 characters. You have a little bit of information to play with in terms of a visual because you can upload a picture, but this is a place where you can be funny. Just keep in mind that if that's not naturally how your voice is. If you're not somebody who's naturally sort of funny and sarcastic in 140 characters, you don't need to do that. I definitely don't have the ability to do that. So I leave Twitter as a place where I can just share sort of inspirational things that I think are cool or funny or interesting from other people's sites. 
So let's talk about Facebook a little bit. Facebook is really interesting because I find most people in the creative community aren't connecting with Facebook or sort of don't get it in the same way that they get Instagram and Pinterest and, and other platforms because it's not as sort of naturally visual, although people are obviously using it to upload tons and tons of photos. So that photo connection and the emotional story behind it is something I think runs through every Facebook feed. People sort of feel comfortable to be incredibly personal, to tell longer stories, to link and reply to other people in a way that they don't seem to do on other platforms. So Facebook is a great place to sort of give yourself a voice if you're someone who has a real emotional and sort of storytelling element to your voice. If that's not something that comes naturally to you, then don't push it and don't worry about that medium right now. But if you're somebody who feels like the other platforms like Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest aren't personal enough for you, Facebook is a great place to really let yourself go, talk about the emotional things behind something you've created, talk about the family history. All those things resonate very strongly on Facebook. And the other wonderful thing about Facebook is Facebook has a really wonderful targeting system. So if you're somebody who's saying promoting a product, promoting even if something really large, like you're promoting a conference or something really large scale, Facebook allows you to advertise and target things to people in a way that you can't really do with other platforms yet. So it's a really one, good one to think about if you've got sort of a really strong story and history behind whatever it is that you're trying to promote and get out there with your voice. The next thing to think about is Pinterest. Pinterest is like the king of all things visual right now. Just in terms of numbers, it's impossible to beat that platform. Everyone seems to be there. Everyone has 10 billion folders and everyone is pinning everything. Um, and I think the most important thing to think about when it comes to Pinterest is that most people are pinning images that are not theirs. I'm not even going to touch the ethical implications of that, but I do think that it's important to let yourself think about this as a place to curate the things you love outside of your own world. I used to feel really strongly that Pinterest was only a place where you should upload your own images and that you should be very careful about all that stuff, but it's not the way that people are using Pinterest, plain and simple. Pinterest has become a place where people can sort of organize boards, whether they're based of colors or dishes they want to cook at home on the weekend or things they want to read or people they admire. They're just images and they're pulling them together and they're saying, these are things that represent me. And that's exactly how you should use Pinterest. Think about it as a way to group items together that express who you are. I find that in inspirational quotes and things about people, sort of larger people in the media, whether they're actors or writers or musicians, those sorts of things really resonate strongly with people on Pinterest. So if you're somebody who feels like you don't really get to fully talk about all the things that are important to you on your blog or talk about them on Instagram, you can talk about them here on Pinterest by grouping them together and adding information under that picture that says, this is why this writer is important to me, or this is why this TED Talk was so important to me. So think about Pinterest as a place to really sort of fully expand that full picture of who you are as a person on the internet. The next thing to talk about is YouTube. And YouTube, I think, is going to be next year what Instagram was this year. YouTube is sort of the quickest growing channel. And I think the creative community hasn't quite capitalized on it yet because even though it's sort of large in the how-to community, I feel like it's taken off way more quickly for like beauty and fashion people than it has lifestyle. But YouTube is massive and the numbers of people there 
dwarf the numbers of people that are on Pinterest and other applications that we think of as so dominant. So I think going forward, the idea of expressing yourself in video form is going to be incredibly important. But here's something to remember. You do not have to be a video editor. You do not have to have a team of people with professional lighting to make a good video for YouTube. And the reason is there are so many interesting applications that allow you to create moving images that you can upload to YouTube. The reason that that's important to remember is I think most people write off video for this reason. They think, I don't want to express myself in that form because maybe I'm not great on camera or maybe I'm not perfect at public speaking. First of all, it's a great place to practice and people aren't going to judge you for one video that's not 100% perfect. But also, it's a really great way to experiment with things like Flipagram or other applications that let you make very simple moving photographs. So if you're somebody who doesn't feel comfortable in front of a camera, Take some simple stills of what you do or take stills of a project that you've made and find a way to express your voice in a moving format or express yourself by interviewing other people. It's completely okay. The bottom line is that this is going to be a channel that's incredibly important for your voice. So find a way to really think about it. Look around YouTube. Take notes about people who you think have interesting YouTube channels or who are sort of experimenting creatively with that. And find a way to make that work for your voice. It doesn't have to be overnight, but think about ways that channel can be exciting for you because there is a whole world of people who love what you love, who are on YouTube, who just haven't come over to the most commonly used platforms of like Pinterest or Twitter or anything like that because they really enjoy videos. So really think long and hard about that platform. It's going to be very important going forward. The last one is Foursquare. Foursquare, I think, was sort of very insidery and New York-y for a while. And it was like only this, it seemed like this small community of cool people who all wanted to know where the other cool people were. And for that reason, I don't think it took off in the same way that it was going to. But from everything that I've heard, Foursquare is very much sort of relaunching and rebranding itself as sort of a cooler, hipper version of Yelp, but with a bit more location and tip thrown in there. And they're reaching out to tons of bloggers and tons of brands to try to get more involved with this platform. So I think it's something that's going to start happening more. And if you think about why this is important for your voice, it's more about trying to get in touch with people who care about what you care about, who aren't coming to your blog already. Lots of people are using Yelp and Foursquare when they travel, when they look for cool things, because that's their way of finding information. If you're there and you're getting your voice across and you're getting your opinions across in that channel, it's just another place for them to find you. So if you feel strongly about the restaurants in your town, or if you feel strongly about the museums in a city that you visited, get yourself a platform, set it up, and share your opinions there in a way that's consistent with your voice. I think it's going to be incredibly important going forward. So before I wrap up, I wanted to make one quick note about how to get started with trying all of these things on any platform. I think no matter how hard you try, it's kind of like reinventing the wheel over and over again. You're going to try things that most people have already done. Or maybe they've already done successfully, especially when it comes to experimenting with photography and composition. Like it or not right now, some things are just popular and are sort of cool and trending because people are really into that aesthetic right now. And my whole point is there's nothing wrong with trying what other people do that you already admire. So really feel free to experiment with sort of the common themes, the common looks, the common trending items in these platforms in a way that makes sense for you. For example, if people are taking photographs of things they see on their morning walk, there's no reason you can't do that if that sort of speaks to who you are and what your voice is. And it's okay to experiment that with that and see how people how people love that. Here's some things to try out that I think are common but are totally worth doing. 
The first is hashtag challenges. You can do this on Twitter. You can do this on Pinterest. You can do this on Instagram. Hashtag something either with your own theme or on a common theme that's popular. I mean, off the top of my head, people love to hashtag things Instagram. They love to hashtag dogs of Instagram, cats of Instagram. You can Google popular hashtags and find out a way to jump onto sort of a popular hashtag if you want to try that. The next thing to think about are filters and composition. The biggest one right now is obviously ViscoCam. There's no reason not to experiment with it. If you're somebody who's interested in expressing yourself visually, get out there, try out that filter, try out that photo system, and see how it sort of opens your mind creatively to think about your work in a photographic point of view. The next thing to think about is collaborations. I think that visual mediums are wonderful, but they're even more powerful when you collaborate pe with people who share your vision, who share your point of view. So get out there, see who's interesting, see who resonates with you, and offer to do something with them. Maybe that's a joint column. Maybe that's sort of a themed hashtag that you do together in order to create content and get the community involved in something. Whatever it is, don't be afraid to try something new. Everything out there has probably been done before, and you do not have to completely reinvent things to be interesting, successful, and authentic on the internet. The more that you're getting out there, keeping an open mind and expressing yourself and what you really believe in, the greater chance you have to connect with people who feel the same way. This episode of After the Jump is supported by MailChimp. More than 6 million people use MailChimp to design and send email marketing campaigns. MailChimp's new automation features make it easy to provide timely, relevant information to your customers and prospects. Instantly send welcome emails, product recommendations, special offers, and more. Segmentation, personalization, automation, all in one. Learn more at MailChimp.com automation. In Episode 70, Productivity Tips, Grace is joined by author Julia Tertian to share how to avoid procrastination and get the most out of your busy day by using baby steps to tackle the tough stuff. Today, I'm joined by my wife, cookbook author and writer, Julia Tertian. Hi. And we decided it'd be much more fun to approach this topic with two people rather than one. Um, so often, productivity posts are about tricks or hacks or tiny tools that let you eke one more minute of work out of your day bit by bit. So today's show is about 14 rules of thumb that I believe in fully and try to practice in my own personal life. And I used to be a master of procrastination. But lately, I've been able to really cross a line a bit more into the land of being someone who gets something not only done, but gets it done on time. So today we're going to divide up these tips into four different categories. The first is making that push through tough blocks, mastering timing, embracing how you work best, and thinking big picture. And a lot of this was really inspired by something I saw on the 99U site recently, and they talked about breaking the seal of hesitation. And I feel like that's really what everything is going to boil down to today. Like, how do you find the best tips for actually pushing through that difficult time when you feel yourself procrastinating and how to actually get through it? So I'm going to start with tip one, and then I'm going to ask Julia questions along the way because I know how she works and she works at home with me. So I feel like you're going to have some good insight of how people can have difficulties with these tips and then how we actually push through them yeah i can speak for the <laughs> pro procrastination <laughs> group but I've, it's funny because i've always described myself as the most productive procrastinator so i think i get my best work done when i'm not doing the work i'm supposed to do so we can we'll get into all that i find that breaking the seal is the first thing we have to talk about and that's the way 99 U phrased it and i think that's a great way to think about it which is you have to take one tiny step I find the best way to do this is to actually just schedule yourself something tiny, like 
10 minutes per day of working on some aspect of a huge project. And I find that 10 minutes over the course of a week, even though that smells, sounds like a really tiny amount of time, is actually incredibly helpful. I feel like you, Julia, have done like a lot of long-term projects yeah. that you've broken up that way before. I totally agree because I primarily work on cookbooks, which um, is a daunting amount of work. And I tend to break it down... I mean, cookbooks sort of break themselves down. They break themselves into chapters and then recipes within those chapters. And so I used to set goals that were so big to accomplish in like a single day or a month or whatever it was. And then when I wouldn't accomplish those, when I was like, oh, I didn't write a chapter today, <laughs> you know, then I would feel bad because I like thought I could do it and then I didn't. And then you end up not doing anything because you're just feeling crummy about it all. So I found if I dedicate I think time works better than an amount of work for me. Mm -hmm. So if I agree with that. Like if I'm like, I'm going to work on this for 10 minutes out of this hour. But then all of a sudden, once I start, I keep going. And I don't want to like compare this to like dieting and like exercise. But it's just a very easy comparison to make, which is like, I always feel like the hardest part about exercising is actually just getting to the mm -hmm. gym or the class or the, you know, park or whatever it is. And I feel like once I get there, I'm fine. And I'm like, I can put in the time and the effort and all that. But starting is always really hard. So I think if you make starting as approachable as possible, and just like a small increment of time, or it's like, I'm going to write one sentence. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but that sentence will lead to the rest. But that first one is hard to write. So well, and another important thing to acknowledge is that you've written that one sentence, and I would much rather be the person who wrote the one sentence and the person who sat there and like hemmed and hawed yeah. about it for three hours and then didn't write mm -hmm. the sentence. And I think that's the thing that holds a lot of people back is worrying that that first step, that first sentence, that first whatever won't be perfect mm -hmm. and it won't be good. And I think at the end of the day, it's much more important to have like five usable sentences that you Absolutely. can have as a draft of something than yeah. nothing. I, the second thing I want to talk about in this category is the idea of turning things that you don't like into learned behavior. Mm. Um, this is one of the most difficult vegetables. things. <laughs> <laughs> How to eat your vegetables. Um, I really hate admin work. Like I, mm -hmm. I really hate having to process like bills and taxes. And I mean, I don't know anybody who does like that, but those sorts of things that come with anyone's job, whether you're a freelancer or not, can be incredibly difficult. But I've found that over the last 10 years, I don't mind them as much anymore. I don't love them. But I think at the same time, they become much easier to do and almost like this robotic way of getting through things because I allot myself a certain time in the morning to only do that type mm -hmm. of thinking. Um, and I think the more often you do something and you can find a way to pull that aspect out of a daily task, it becomes less scary. So if you've got a problem getting through one particular part of your to-do list that you don't enjoy, look at what that actual task entails and break that into what the actual steps are. Is it that you don't like dragging out Excel? Is it that you don't like having to get out of the house and go mail things? Find a way to work those actual activities into things you have to do every single day. If making a trip to the mail store or if making a trip to wherever becomes something you have to do every single week, it becomes much less of a big deal. I find if there's one thing that's out of the norm of what I typically do, I can find a way to put that one out of norm thing off for months. <laughs> but I also think it's, I've come, I mean, I totally agree. And I've come to not look forward to doing my taxes or anything. I also think this is a much, I'm much more relaxed having this conversation on April 17th <laughs> as opposed to 14th. Um, but I, I find, or at least ideally, in my head, maybe not in practice, I find that all those activities that are like the business of doing, um, I guess, my business, 
that I used to really dread and feel, and I think I would dread them because I didn't know exactly how to do them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I know, I know how to write a recipe and I can like own that and feel confident about that. But like when it comes to doing taxes and admin work, like I don't feel as confident. So I think that's kind of what puts me off of it a lot. Um, But that's, I guess, psychological, but I've come to not look forward to that stuff, but I think it does balance the creative work a bit more. And I think there's something, not that it's mindless at all. And you, you know, definitely it's pays to pay attention. Um, but I think it's nice to do tasks that don't use my head in the same way Mm -hmm. that my work does. And I think it makes me actually look forward to my work more, Mm -hmm. which is kind of an added benefit. So I always think about my work life, especially because I am a freelancer and I work from home and I don't have like set structures in place is I always think of it as like the seesaw and I'm always trying to achieve some balance. So it's like if I'm putting in, if I'm testing recipes and standing in the kitchen all day, one day, I want the next day to be like sitting and writing and writing up those recipes and always, you know, like balancing sitting and standing or like using my head and using my hands or whatever it is. So if, if doing spreadsheets and stuff for like one hour in a day means getting another hour to like do something physical or active, you know, always the seesaw the last little thing to think about in this this advice in terms of pushing through that really tough first step i find it's incredibly helpful to just combine like tasks and i don't mean do all of your taxes on one day and save it for one day but if you find that you hate putting off or you hate doing one thing and you put it off put all those similar tasks together and i find doing them first thing in the morning is the best thing to do so i do every single bit of my admin work right when i wake up so like at eight or nine a.m i'm on the internet i'm answering every email that's piled up over the night i'm answering every bit of send this person a paycheck send this person a bill do whatever that is i get that out of the way and then the rest of the day i can be creative and deal with what i want to deal with i also think doing that kind of stuff where there's like such a definitive like beginning an end Mm -hmm. like gives at least for me like such a sense of accomplishment so it's like if I can go if I can get that admin stuff done or I can exercise in the morning or do whatever it is that I like usually tend to put off and if I can feel accomplished that I did that it really fuels the rest of my work and so if I can go into my sort of more creative or you know fun whatever you want to call it work already feeling a sense of accomplishment I think it really it helps the work and I think it's always like I love um when you're like starting to make a list of things to do, but like I always include one thing I've already done so I can already cross it off. And it's like, it just makes me feel like I'm already on my way. So Mm -hmm. it's a nice, it's good to get that stuff done before the other stuff. I think it's a great idea. So the next category I want to talk about is timing and timing is a bit obvious when you're talking about productivity, but I think a lot of times people are thinking about timing in a way that already feels stressful. And I think if you look about it as like you have more than enough time to get things done in a way that's important for your business in the day, you don't have to get it all done in one day. It becomes a bit more, it's easy to grasp. So the first thing I want to talk about is starting early. I've talked about this ad nauseum on this show before, but the older I get, the more I truly, truly believe that every person I know who's like incredibly busy and incredibly productive starts early. And that doesn't mean it has to be 6am, but Before 10 a.m., they are up and doing something. Um, So I really firmly believe that starting early before you've had a chance to, like, dread doing something is an important time to to start difficult things. Because I find if I don't do that stuff, I don't like, like, admin work and email and all of that. If I don't do that before 10 a.m., it's never getting done. It's going to get put off and boomeranged and sent back to me in four hours and then four more hours because I don't want to do it. So if I just kind of throw myself in in the morning before I've had time to, like, clear out my eyes and really think about what I have to do that day, I find it a bit easier. 
I want to talk about something a little bit controversial, controversial internally for me, because it's advice that I kind of believe in and that I practice on my own life, but I have a difficulty accepting because it makes me feel like my work-life balance is off. But I think there's actually a really good part to doing a little bit of work on the weekend. Um, I feel like I've read a lot about like business productivity and people who speak about this thing like every day of the year and they travel giving you advice and they always tell you to use your weekends for work. And I feel really strongly that you should not be using 90% of your weekend for work. But every now and then when I do put in like two or three hours, maybe just on a Sunday morning, I feel so much better because that way Monday morning, I'm not starting in already behind. I'm not worrying on Sunday night about all the stuff I'm going to have to get up and do early. And then I actually get my Sunday night to watch wonderful HBO shows and other things that I get very excited about. Exactly. To order <laughs> things. Um, but I think that's, it's kind of okay to let you, let you have a little bit of that leeway. Um, I think a lot of times people write that off as like just completely shut off, unplug, don't touch anything. But I think there is a lot of value in getting just that tiny step ahead so that you get to start the work week feeling calm and not like I'm already behind on everything. So that leads perfectly into the next category I want to talk about, which is really learning to embrace the way that you work. I think obviously we're going to share tips today. There are a billion people sharing tips on the internet. And I think so many people read those things and think, oh my God, I don't do that. I don't do this. Or I don't have time to do that sort of thing. I think the first thing to do that's really important is to understand that there's no one way to do anything. And that if you can find the way that works for you right now, that's completely acceptable and that's perfect for you. And that's completely okay. I think a lot of times I read like the David Allen getting things done type of school of thought about you have to break every action into three different things you can do and file it into three different folders. And I understand why those things work, but they don't work for me. So accept that. That's step one. <laughs> Easy peasy. No problem. Do you. <laughs> Do you. Um, one thing I think that's really important to talk about is the way that we can choose to either feel and feel feelings and then move on or let them be a huge hurdle in the day. And that's something I've talked about a lot on shows about negativity and dealing with those. And I think this really ties into the idea of just accepting who you are and the way you work is that if you have something that comes into your day, that's frustrating, that's upsetting, that's difficult, or that's wonderful. And that makes you feel like you want to take a chunk of time away to like, feel and live in whatever that thing that just happened happened i think it's good to let yourself do that i think so often i see people put off important phone calls or if something upsetting happens or they don't feel well they just push through it and keep working and obviously within reason there's a time and place for that mentality but i think a lot of times there's really something to be said for if you're frustrated walk away from the desk like get away from the computer go outside or step out somewhere where you can have some privacy and accept that feeling feel it and try to work through it in a way that lets you be focused and attentive to what your actual personal needs are. I totally agree because I think if there's, I think the if if something is frustrating you or upsetting you or you know whatever negative feeling happens, and then you take that with you into your work, the price you're going to pay for that usually is way more than the actual mm-hmm. thing itself. If you just deal with it and dealing with it might just mean like feeling it mm-hmm. and fully feeling it and putting everything aside, just like you were saying. And then you can go back into whatever it is that you actually need to do, you know, and you've gotten over that thing and you're not bringing that with you and it's not taking away from everything that you have to do. The next thing I want to talk about is something I love to hate, which are meetings and appointments. Um, I think I have a bit of a reputation for being somebody who like refuses to make meetings for anything unless I could get a really clear idea of what that meeting's goal is and how long it's going to be and why we're meeting in person versus online or why are we talking about it? in person versus an email. And I think that that comes down to 
the way everybody works efficiently on their own. And I think some people really love meetings and really love to meet people face to face or hash things out that way or to brainstorm in person. But I don't think that's actually how everybody works best. I feel I've learned pretty well that that's not the format in which I communicate best. It's not the format in which I learn the best. Um, and I think the more that I can say like, okay, I'm not going to swear off meetings just because I don't like them, but because this isn't the most efficient way to get done what I need to get done. It's a small thing that allows you to put your needs first. And I think too often people don't put their own work needs and habits in the forefront and say like, Hey, I totally understand that your MO is to always schedule a meeting, but I actually work best if we could do a little bit of work over email first, or let's jump on Skype really quickly and see if we can push through some of this before we spend, you know, half an hour commuting, half an hour commuting back and all of that sort of stuff. Um, well, it's that, yeah, I think it comes down to timing often. Cause I think that half an hour mm -hmm. of like having a coffee with someone can very quickly turn into like three hours out of your day. Like maybe exactly. it's, maybe it's far away. Maybe they're late. Maybe you're late. Maybe it gets, you know, you start talking and you keep talking and all sorts of things. So that's good to be aware of, but I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because I have always loved meetings. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for a long time, I really always said yes to any time anyone wanted to meet or I would propose like, Hey, why don't we meet and like talk about this? Like, even if we're not actually working on anything specific. Um, and for me that came out of a desire just to build a community around my work because I work alone at home and you know, it's night. And also if I have these meetings set up, it helps me structure the rest of my day and my schedule. Um, and I also really just like talking to people and hearing what they're doing, but I've definitely, I think I've, so I feel like I was on the other end of the spectrum from what you just described, but I think I'm finding some middle ground. I'm talking with my hands right now and I realize no one can see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel like I've found a little bit, again, of balance and, you know, have met somewhere in the middle where I'll still um, take a meeting or propose a meeting. But I think I've gotten better at if I sit down with someone in person, like being the first one to say like, all right, like, why are we here today? Or like, mm. you know, what do we like, what do we need to get done? Or, um, you know, so I make that time as efficient as possible because it's like, I mean, of course, I'd love to hear how everyone's doing and where, mm -hmm. you know, what they just spent their weekend doing and what they ate for dinner last night and all that. And like, yeah, I'm totally curious. But also at a certain point, like, I don't need to know what you ate for dinner if it means like, you know, we're just trying to get a project mm -hmm. done or something. Um, all right. Let's get to our last topic, which is big picture ideas. Um, I think it's incredibly important to embrace that a lot of the things that have to do with productivity are about taking a quick break to sit and pause and think about what's the most important thing for you in the big picture. So many productivity tasks and hacks are about like getting five extra minutes, finding an extra 10 minutes to work on something. And like, those are all great short game ideas. But I think at the end of the day, those things are very easy to just they pile up. And the next thing you know, you're not thinking about what's the most important for you. The first thing I want to think is actually a tip that I read um, from Business Insider. I love Business Insider. If people don't read that website. It's so good, of, so full of so really great advice. Um, that's sort of like a billion links to everything. So that if you see one bit of advice, there are like 15 other articles that are related to it or other people you should be reading that talk about this topic. I find it so helpful. Um, but Business Insider did an interview with the CEO of Good Data, whose name is Roman Stanek. And he said that every single month, he takes one day completely out unplugged to think about big term, big picture stuff. And I find that any business owner, whether you're a freelancer and you're working for yourself or you're somebody who's running a small business where you make things and sell things, to take a full day off and actually think about what you did that month, what you did that week, or what you're doing that year is incredibly important. 
important because no matter how hard you try, those are the thoughts that stay in the back of our head all the time. Like, is this getting me towards whatever my goal is, my big goal for my whole year, my business or whatever. But if you kind of let those things nag at you, you never really give them your full attention and they take away from what you're doing at the moment. So I find I try to do this like a couple hours a week um, versus one day a month. But I think if that's what works best for your schedule, one day a month is a really great idea. I think I think it's incredibly important. And I think there's a big and quite potentially bad like seduction about being busy Hmm. in this sort of day and age. And I think everyone wants to be, because even when you're not working, you're, you know, you're on any form of social media, Mm -hmm. you're texting your friends, you're, you know, you're plugged in all the time. And I think everyone really, I think there's, I mean, maybe this is just because we live in New York. I don't know. But like, I think there's this competitive spirit to like Mm -hmm. how busy you are and like, oh, like I'm at dinner, but like my phone is like, you know, like all these things are popping up and buzzing mm-hmm. and beeping. And it's like, but I think that makes people feel like good. Cause like people are in touch with you and you're in touch with them. And there's all, I'm talking with my hands again. <laughs> we can see. Um, but I think it's so important to like turn all of that off, even if it's for like, you know, again, like five minutes in the morning or something, you know, and just have a moment to pause, have a moment to think about like what you're doing. Are you enjoying it? Mm-hmm. Like, are you doing this in the most efficient way you can? Like, I think it's always good to like stop and check in. And I think the more often you do that, the better your work is, the better the quality of your day-to-day life is, Mm -hmm. you know, the happier you are. And like, I mean, I think it's, it's easy to like think about this in terms of like personal stuff. Like I know, like my favorite time that we spend together is like if we have dinner and we leave our phones at home Mm -hmm. and like, and I think it's, I mean, it like, it's a good example for the rest of our lives too. And I think it's really I think you get really good ideas when you like put away all the noise and I, I just think it's beneficial to be quiet every now and then. I agree. And I think it's important if you look at, I mean, I, I look at this sort of stuff pretty regularly cause I'm geeky like that, like on Amazon, what the most popular business and life advice books are. All the ones in the top are like the four hour work week and how to get away from like stress and business. I think as much as a New York in particular, like glamorizes overworking essentially I think at their core, like people vote with their dollar. And I think when you see what people actually buy and what they're interested in, it's about working less and how to work smarter and how to spend less time doing what you don't want to do and more time doing what you do want to do. So I think the sooner people can step away from the idea of like, you know what, I'm more impressed with somebody who's found a way to like actually live the life they want to live versus somebody whose phone is like blowing up every Mm -hmm. two seconds with some sort of important text or update or whatever it is. So... Let's talk about delegation. Um, I feel really strongly that delegation is probably one of the only things people should think about if they feel overwhelmed by the idea of productivity and don't understand how to get through things. But I think the first thing they think about is delegating is like, oh, I can give that to somebody I work with, but not everybody works with somebody else. And I think that's completely okay. But there are a lot of things you can delegate throughout the day that I don't think people think about. Um, Obviously, I've talked about and you've talked about too, the brilliance of TaskRabbit and websites that let you take things off of your daily to-do list that don't have to be done by you and give you more time to do what you actually love. Um, But I think that that's something that shouldn't be overlooked. And I think, yes, it often costs money to whether it's hire a place or drop off your laundry versus spending two hours doing your laundry or hiring somebody to babysit for a bit while you work on the book that you're writing, whatever it is. I think that those are incredibly worthwhile expenses. Um, they're obviously things that are somewhat of a luxury and people have to be able to plan and budget for that. But I think too often people don't think about how important it is to not have every single thing, have your name attached to it 
Um, I think that very much correlates to the idea of how much we glamorize overwork and pulling late hours and pulling all-nighters and having you be the person who did every single thing. I don't think that's the strongest and the best way to do things. I think there's something to be said for being smart enough and clever enough to find ways to get people to help you or hire people to do things that don't actually need your stamp on them. I could not agree more. And I think, but I do think, I'm just going to speak a little bit to something you sort of mentioned about the luxury of it, Mm because I think it's hard when you... I mean, it's it's hard for all of us, but I think it's particularly, at least for me, I know it's a challenge because I don't work for a company that delegates other things on my behalf. Mm-hmm. So when I choose to delegate, sometimes it's really daunting because it's like maybe, and it could be on a really small scale, maybe it's paying a task rep at $20 to mm-hmm. do like a delivery that just, you know, it's worth that $20 because like it means I get two more hours in my day to actually do work, you know, that's... I think it comes down to, for me, I want to do things that only I can do and are particular Mm. to me. And if there's other things that someone else can do and I can really tap into getting their help on that and it, like, lets me do my work better, I'm all for it. Um, But I think it is, it can be really scary when you're the one who has to pay for it. But I think when you realize, like, I, maybe a year or two ago, I hired... I had an accountant I didn't love and I hired a really good accountant who was much more expensive than my last accountant, but she's so good and I trust her and she does all the work that I hate doing and that I'm scared to do because I don't know Mm -hmm. how to do it and I can hand that all over to her and yeah, maybe she cost a bit more, but that price is worth the peace of mind I get in return and it lets me go back and do all the work I really love and it lets me do that well because I'm not stressed about all this stuff that I have no idea about. So for me, that price is totally worth it. But, like, the first time I got a bill from her, was I, like, shocked? And did my, like, (laughs) jaw hit the ground? Absolutely. But then when I see how that, you know, when I sort of quantify, like, that kind of um, just benefit to everything else, it is so worth it. And it's an investment. I think when you work for yourself, if you're a writer, a maker, whatever you are, I think you have to think of these things as investments in your company and your company is you. So, you know, it's worth it. Absolutely. We're just about out of time. So I'm going to throw two more quick Mm -hmm. things out there. Two of the things I love the most. The first one, always be learning. Um, I think if you're thinking big picture, you have to constantly be plugged in in some way to what's happening in your industry. And that includes your industry in the business owner or freelancer sense, because I think so often people are struggling with things. And if they don't look up, they might miss that somebody's written something really great that could help them with that. Someone's created a tool or an app or some sort of technique that could help you improve or streamline something that you haven't figured out yet. So I think one of the best things to do is always be learning. Um, My favorite sources, I love Jess Lively's podcast. Alt Summit provides some great channels and online courses. Um, I know I ragged on him a bit, but I do think David Allen is pretty much a genius when it comes to systemizing work to make it easier for you, if that works for you. And Design Sponge also offers a section of the site free every week called Biz Ladies, uh, which is not just for ladies, but for everyone. Um, that is great free advice if you need to always be kind of updating on what's happening and that can help you with your business. The last thing that I want to send everybody home with is the idea that all of these things are great and these tips are important, but you should also embrace the idea of whatever works until it doesn't. A lot of times what works for you in a business will work for a year or work for five years or work for 10 years, but it may not work for that 11th year. And I think if you cut yourself a little bit of slack and say, okay, this was great for a while. I love delegating or I loved not delegating, but now I'm ready to move on to a different way of doing things. It doesn't mean that your business isn't working. It doesn't mean that you are not a successful person. It just means that things change and that is the natural order of the way people work. So no matter what you've learned today or taken home with you from this episode, I hope you'll give yourself a little bit of slack and understand that if these work for you for a bit, that's great, but totally accept that things will change as you go forward. And that's just part of being an adaptable business owner. 
How do you grow a brand without losing the original spirit? Matt Lewis and Renato Poliafito of Baked Bakery join Grace in episode 79 for an in-depth discussion on growth, transition, and integrity. Today's episode is all about growth, namely, how do you grow a business and stay true to the original soul of your idea, and how do you stay relevant in today's online world without getting overwhelmed? I'm thrilled to be joined today by Matt Lewis and Renato Poliafito, co-founders of Baked Bakery in Brooklyn and soon to be in Manhattan, too. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Baked will celebrate its 10th birthday next January. And over the past few years, I have so enjoyed watching my favorite bakery grow from a neighborhood must to a national and international success, including being one of Oprah's favorite treats on her Oh, list. You have not only grown your bakery success, but you've also written best-selling cookbooks, four of them, and released a line of baking dishes and baked uh, mixes with Williams-Sonoma. And you two certainly know a thing or two about growing a business. So I am so excited to hear how you've grown your business and how to make it big and exciting and a household name at this point by still staying true to who you are. So um, I was reading your website in preparation for this going through. I always like to see what part of a business's story people choose to put on their website and what part they don't. And I love that you mentioned that part of your original business plan, um, you described wanting to create a great American bakery that wasn't a cupcake shop. Yes. Um, although your cupcakes are some of my favorite things that you make. But walk us through what your original goals and hopes for the bakery were back in 2005. I guess um, pre-2005. Originally, I mean, I think both Nada really um, you know, was a little bit of either ahead of the coffee boom or right on the coffee boom in New York when um, we really wanted to add a really cool classic coffee component. And we're working with Stumptown right now. And I wanted to add a bakery and so did Nato that didn't focus just on cupcakes. I felt like people would say, I'd say, what's your favorite bakery? And they'd mention a really cool cupcake place or maybe not a really cool cupcake place. (laughs) And, but I thought, you know, I think in the end we both thought, why aren't they mentioning a place that serves like great three layer cakes or chocolate chip cookies or brownies? Um, and I've always had a weird brownie obsession. So we wanted to kind of create a, an American bakery that wasn't just about cupcakes without denigrating the cupcake. Yeah. And also, um, you know, uh, remain true to Matt and my aesthetic. You know, we felt that design wise, I was coming from a design background. Matt has a strong design, you know, aesthetic. And we felt that a lot of the bakeries, not only being cupcakeries, were clones of each other. And they mm-hmm. were just kind of expanding and expanding and expanding. And like grandma's. Yeah, that kind, kind of, of like look. Norman Rockwell aesthetic, and which is fine, but not what we are. So when we set forth, we wanted to have a strong design aesthetic. And at the time, you know, the design, and I still think it, it's, it holds, it holds after a decade. Um, we just wanted to be modern and clean and a little more masculine and, you know, something a little different that you wouldn't normally expect to see if you were to walk into a bakery. But when you started, did you imagine the history that you have now? I think some people truly do plan out that vision in the beginning. Or were you just kind of aiming to have a sustainable shop that you could do what you loved at? I think I think it was more for me, it was more of the latter. You know, it's like for me, it was like every day was a gift, you know, where it's like as long as we're open and we can keep on going, that's that's all I wanted. Like if you asked me 10 years ago, can you imagine where you'll be in 10 years? I couldn't. I really, really I agree. Couldn't. I can't imagine where I'll be like in four hours. <laughs> what was the? What do you think, Matt, was the scariest thing about starting a business? You know, the scariest thing is you do take on a ton of debt. You also go from, uh, you know, like Nato mentioned, we both came from corporate jobs, corporate jobs that paid pretty well um, and provided stability. You trick yourself into thinking I could go into doing something that's completely 
um, paycheck to paycheck, it's really, really hard to go backwards. Um, and yeah. it took us, it took us a long while to kind of get used to it. And it, it still was never very comfortable. So that was like the scariest part. I mean, just, you know, you also go from a, you know, you worry about paying yourself, but you don't even think about, Oh, before I pay myself, I have to pay the phone bill, the internet bill, all these like other things you didn't anticipate. You're always, you're always last on the list. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you, you feel last on the list. (laughs) Um, let's talk about something positive. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What was the first big milestone or moment or to take a cue from Oprah who loves your brownies? What was your O moment that told you that baked was going to make it? Oh gosh! What was your turning point? It might be Oprah, actually. It, Oprah was <laughs> that like, weird? Is that our O moment? Is Oprah? You know, I think like the first, yeah, the first big press. Oprah was kind of our first big press, and um, then we did that. Uh, we filmed a show from the Food Network. Uh, I watched that. That was the that very recipe my first, for success, yeah. and that once that aired, and we saw ourselves on television for like an edited, you know, dramatic <laughs> half hour. Um, I was just like, oh my God, this is something, you know, people are paying attention and people started coming in and calling and, and, you know, that set like the, I guess the PR machine rolling and, you know, suddenly people were interested in us. But I think aside from those, seeing people coming back in, like the customers kind of returning and saying, oh my God, you know, I've tried this and now I want to try this, or this is my favorite thing. And I've never had anything like this before. You knew you were onto something. And then it was between me and Matt trying to figure out, it's like, well, how do we, how do we grow this? How do we make more of this and and make sure that we could continue paying ourselves? You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, obviously this is the, this is the magic formula. Since your first very open door day of Baked, how much has Baked grown since you started? How many employees do you have now? How many stores are you going to expand into? What's your current status? Well, we opened up, I think, with like six employees total. That's a good amount of employees. Yeah, Yeah. it was decent. Yeah, I think it was, um, yeah, it was about six. Now we're about 20. Um, And in a few months, we'll be about 50. (laughs) So... It's that's that's, that's a the big, scary part. Yeah. That's, the scary <laughs> that's part. a scary. Do you guys part. have an HR manager? Yeah. Um, you know, it's rapidly forming. We have a GM who is uh, kind of like a catch-all right now. She's doing a little bit of everything, and she is amazing. Like I, I every day I thank her, and I'm like <laughs> I I would be dead without you right now. Um, but she's kind of like putting people in place and trying to figure out who fits where and doing that sort of thing. And we're we're you know, I was telling Matt before we were talking about growing pains, and I feel that this is the first big, true growing pain. Like, everything in the past 10 years felt like, yeah, you know, uncomfortable mm-hmm. in this, and we would always call them growing pains. But this is the first time I'm like, wow, this hurts, you know, and this is like, we have to figure a lot of stuff out. And um, so we're in that state right now. That's Well, that was going to be my next question. It's about growing pains. Ah. Aside from sort of the, the HR component, of which I think is probably the most difficult part of growth. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some other growing pains that you've had and what have you learned from them so far? Well, and and by the way, you're right. I totally value like the HR departments that I used to kind of (laughs) not value when I was working in my corporate Mm -hmm. job. Like these people have it so easy. No, I mean, they were, they, they're dreams. Um, And I'm glad we have something kind of coming into place. I think, you know, the hardest part is uh, a, we're doing construction right now. Um, doing construction, I think when we were younger, it, it, it is something, I mean, we are older now. We're also a lot busier than we were. We weren't focused on running our existing business and opening a new one. And then just adding 30 employees. Um, 
you know, we've been really lucky. We've had some really great employees, but it, you know, finding those great employees is really difficult. Um, and I, I think probably the hardest part for us, really. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of competition. You know, New York, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, has changed so much that, um, you know, I couldn't really afford to move here. So I'm trying to ask somebody to, I'm paying them a very small wage to work in Manhattan is very hard. Um, but, you know, it's what the food business is right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I would love to talk a little bit more about the growing pains that you've had that have resulted in sort of the way you've changed the way you run your business. Have you had any lessons that have made you sort of restructure things a little bit or maybe change the way you approach that part of your business? Gosh, I mean, I feel like we go through that every week. Like, I feel <laughs> yeah, like we've there's had a couple, though. Yeah, we've had. I mean, if you want to m- mention one or two, but I feel like it's part of the business where you approach something. And I think that's what makes a successful business is you know, your willingness to adapt and change, you know, pivot. Pivot, pivot, like on a dime. It's like, you know, if something doesn't work, go the other way, you know, figure it out because otherwise it'll, it'll just stay there stagnant and not work and get bigger. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that is super important, but do you have any examples? Um, I mean, two specifics jumped to mind. I think we didn't anticipate doing as much wholesale when we opened, mm-hmm. um, because wholesale is difficult. You've, you're employing drivers, you're employing, um, people to kind of just manage the wholesale business. And it's not as fun because you don't get to see the intimate customer reaction of selling them directly. But you have to kind of add wholesale when you have a kitchen that's not operational 24 hours a day. You need to make it operational 24 hours a day. Yep. Um, that would be like our biggest, that was like kind of a, a thing that always stood out for me. Um, and it's been successful. We've modified our wholesale to work for us now. Yeah. Whereas before we were just like, anybody will <laughs> sell whatever, you know. Um, but now it's, it, yeah, it's, it's an arm of the business where, you know, and I feel like Baked now has m- multiple arms. I feel like we're kind of like this octopus where, you know, we're working on the bakeware. We're working with William Sonoma. We're working with Granola. We're working with... And Granola Wendy's. would be the other yeah. kind of example. We, uh, Whole Foods came in very early on because, you know, they really do try to support the local businesses. And they were like, we want to buy a couple of bags of Granola and we were bagging it at the bakery, making it ourselves, bagging it at the bakery and shipping it out. And we just realized after a while, after they opened their you know, 50th store in the region, this was, uh, you couldn't do it. We'd just become a granola shop. Yeah. So we actually worked really closely uh, with somebody else to kind of manufacture for us. And again, I don't think we, if you told us when we first opened that we'd be you know, making granola for a couple hundred stores, we'd have... That was not in our business plan. No, no. I, I mean, I think the, 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 what was in our business plan was just to have a bakery and a coffee shop. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know, Matt's, uh, Matt loves ha- is a, the big picture guy. And uh, he has many big pictures in his head. So <laughs> Some of them not so pretty. Yeah, but I mean, it's just like we've, we've kind of gone after every, or I'd say a lot of the opportunities that have been presented to us just, just to see how it would work, how it would go through. And, you know, some have been successful, some have not been successful, but, you know, in a weird way, we've been fortunate enough where everything mostly has been successful Knock on, and now we're just crazy busy. (laughs) (laughs) I think that busyness is always the thing that people have a hard time accepting about growth because I think when they think the business grows, it's successful. I see it everywhere. The owners must be kicking back in the Hampton somewhere (sighs) because their brownies are not working, but your work like load, it increases tenfold because you're suddenly responsible for construction and team management and all the different things that you have to handle. I want to talk about the details of how you guys have grown your business. So do you guys set benchmarks for how you want to sort of achieve things growth wise? 
we do. I mean, it's it's a little more scattershot, I think, um, than you know. Ideally, we would like to do it, and we're trying to get much better at it. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to be a little bit like I think Nada said. We try to be fearless about attacking like opportunities, and if an opportunity comes up, you know, I, I think we either throw ourselves full force into it, and we've always done that in the past. But now maybe we think about it a little more, or think through, you know, where will this lead us in the next couple of years. We actually have to, yeah, we have to kind of pick our battles, yeah. I think. And I think that's the goal moving forward because we're we're only two people, really. And before where we had, uh, you know, I don't even, I can't even say, I can't believe I'm saying this about myself, like boundless energy to kind of do things. <laughs> I don't know if that's there anymore. You know, it's like you have to be a little wiser and say, okay, let's look at this potential project or, you know, this opportunity, see how it's presenting itself, what the payoff will be, and either go with it or just say, you know, no, thanks. I'm glad that you guys mentioned fear as an, an element in that, because we did, I did a show a couple of weeks ago about the importance of risk. And mm-hmm. I think that's sort of a, a common connecting point between people who are achieving things in big, big ways. Um, what sort of risks have you taken to grow your business? And can you think of any examples of a moment where you felt like this is a huge chance, but we're going to I think it? right now is our biggest mm-hmm. risk. Is, um, yeah. And, you know, to kind of back that up and kind of discuss what you mentioned earlier, you know, we've always kind of gone after it. We've always been fearless and except we've never opened another store before. So, you know, and people always ask us, why haven't you opened the next one? Because it is such a financial undertaking and also a stressful undertaking. We have watched from the sidelines while many people opened a successful business in New York and replicated it several times over, or they've opened one here and then one in LA. And we've never done that because we felt that was a riskier proposition than licensing or, uh, writing another book or, 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 you know, putting together some granola. So I think this right now for us is our biggest thing, this opening a Tribeca store. Mm-hmm. How do you guys know when it's time to grow? What's that sort of marker or the feeling you have when you can tell it's time to try something new? Oh gosh. I don't know. Investor, I think is, <laughs> a, is a good incentive. Um, you know, I feel that in a way we, uh, hit a stride, I think, with, with Baked and Red Hook, you know, where we got to a point where I think we got as close to relaxing in, on a Hamptons beach or whatever. And we did Hamptons have that house. moment. We, there was a moment where it was just like, okay, this is manageable. I can do this. I still work a lot, but I have, like, my weekends are free and I can go take a vacation. And then crazy, crazy, we decided, like, okay, now it's time to expand. And so now we're at that place again where... It is constant. It is all the time. Um, it's a gut feeling, I think. Yeah. I mean, we never, again, it wasn't really in our business plan, like, on this date, we'll op- go out and look for a store. We'd always entertain Manhattan, and everybody and Manhattan- else has kind of pushed us that way. So Yeah, Manhattan was, like, kind of a dream of ours, but we wanted to make sure that it was uh, done right. Well And we didn't want to, yeah, and financed in a way, and, you know, we, were, we partnered with the right person. And, you know, again, we've had those opportunities. We've pursued many opportunities. We've seen a ton of spaces. We really looked for a solid year before the Tribeca location. Oh, yeah. There's I not mean, a lot of spaces, surprisingly. Oh, my God. And they're just, they're, they're so expensive, and they're so horribly like they're just caves and you just have to go in and spend a million dollars to just make it look like a space you know so it's tough it's 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 really a tough thing how do you guys maintain quality control when you're expanding constantly so I think this hard. Is, and I, this is something I ask people who I think have achieved the types of success you guys have achieved and nobody ever has a good answer I'm, it, I'm it is it is, is we talk about it every day and it's like my the 
for me, it's the bane of my existence. It's, it's an like, obsession. To it some is. Degree. I'm. I have like a, a level of ADD. Uh, not ADD, OCD. I think you have ADD. <laughs> I have ADD. I have OCD. OCD. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, for me, it's like I love the perfection in things, like the, the simplicity in things, just, uh, you know, organization and, and just things looking just as perfect as they can possibly be. For me, that is like, it's better than eating it, you know? Um, but, of course, I you know, quality control in terms of how it looks, how it tastes, all that, it's a it's a daily battle even with employees you've had forever and it's you know battle is a strong word but it's like you're it's a it's a give and take and making sure that they're doing it right and you know being a bakery where you're um given like custom cake orders all the time and you have to like interpret that cake for the customer it's it's always like you're always um encountering these challenges like every day so it's, it's yeah, it's hiring the right employees. And again, we didn't open the 10 stores yet. And I think maybe that was one of the reasons is we were concerned about quality control. Yeah. So just making sure that if someone were to walk into the Tribeca store and walk into the Red Hook store, that if they asked for the same exact thing, they would get the same exact thing. And we'll see how that works out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you guys maintain your original business spirit when you're growing so quickly? Um, is that something you guys return to on a regular basis? Like, are we still kind of sticking to the core values we started with? Or do you feel like just being so closely a part of the day-to-day business keeps you in that same spirit? You know, I think it's inherent in us, um, pretty much. I yeah. mean, you know, our vision is slightly different, but I would say more so it overlaps. Um, and we've never done anything that felt off. I mean, we did... Uh, we have explored opportunities. I think you even brought one up uh, in one of the quest- pre-questions about um, Dubai. It just didn't feel right. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't feel right from a couple of perspectives, mainly branding, um, and also just personally, it just didn't work. So, Have you ever for, been to Dubai? No, I have not. Uh-huh. <laughs> for anyone listening, there was a, ch- a chance that you guys might have expanded there under like a franchise yes. capability. And everybody's there. So you get there and your eyes get really wide. I mean, Shake Shack has a, a huge outpost there. I think they have 25. Um, yeah. uh, Magnolia Bakery has a huge outpost. But again, I mean, it, it just seems like a track a lot of successful restaurateurs go or food businesses go. It just did not feel right for us. It didn't, especially for the second location. I mean, I Red feel, Hook in Dubai just seems very strange. <laughs> just on the window. <laughs> on the window. Yeah. Um, I feel that, uh, you know, even though we're a pretty big business at this point, we're still very mom and pop. Matt and I are still so hands-on. So the idea of having a location in Dubai and licensing and franchising, however appealing, it just didn't seem like true to us at the time. And still now. I mean, you know, yeah, even opening up this second shop is like, we're doing it ourselves. Every step of the way, every decision is us. Yeah. I love that. So that leads perfectly into my last question. I find so much of a business's ability to grow and succeed is about asking for what you really want. And I think you know what you really want when you stay in touch with yourself. What are your big picture goals and things that you guys would like to achieve that you really kind of want to make sure baked gets done? Oh, wow. I think there's a bunch of them. And I think Nada and I probably have slightly different ones. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, you start with yours. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of uh, just, you know, friends or acquaintances assume we want to open like 50 of these. I don't think that is the goal at all. I think a couple of more standalone businesses that still feel unique each location. Um, I'm getting really into bread all of a sudden. I would love to do something more with bread. Uh, I have this like, uh, you know, art, the artisanal loaf is 
just very sexy to me for some reason. I feel like that could still happen in New York somewhere. Um, I think I've heard sexy <laughs> You're talking to the wrong people. <laughs> so I think just a couple more locations. I do like the licensing business. I think it is a lot of fun, especially when you work with a, um, you know, a partner that wants to stay true to your vision as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a little less uh, financial overhead. Yeah. It's a way to expand, get your name out there, um, become kind of global or national, however you want it, without overreaching. As for me, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it jumps back to quality control and, and the, the product. If we can, if I can get to a point where our the quality and the uh, look of our product is consistent and perfect, and I think we're super, super close, I wouldn't mind having, like, maybe like half a dozen stores, but... I would love them to be like New York, LA, Tokyo, <laughs> London, Rome, you know, and just have this kind of global presence, only have a few locations, but be able to offer the American, a true American dessert experience in Rome. Oh my God. You know, and then I get to go to Rome, you know, there it is. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> now we know why. There you go. If you guys could look back and give yourselves 10 years ago, one piece of advice based on what you know now oh. running baked, what would you tell yourselves? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think we, and we've kind of discussed this and we've talked to other people about this. I I still think a lot of businesses are undercapitalized when they open. Um, And I probably can't stress it enough. Just really make sure you're capitalized fully. It's like kind of, I think it's a business 101 thing to have six months in the bank. We didn't do that. Um, And it was not fun. So I, I think it would make life easier to make sure you know what you're in for financially and also to have that money behind you where you're not worried about how am I going to pay for my MTA ticket today? Yeah. Kind of thing. I would say, uh, you know, I would agree with Matt. I would say also have a clear vision of your brand and what you want to say to everyone because everyone's going to come in and, you know, ask what, what is this? What's going on here? And consistency I, I think is super important, but also, yeah, make sure you have enough money. Mm-hmm. It sounds silly, but I mean, I think it is kind of just the number one thing. It's yeah. an important thing to drive home. Budget and yourself. Like, create a budget, you know? Super important. Valuable advice. <laughs> um, I love listening to you guys. I feel like you, this is my last show before a vacation break, and I feel like you guys are the perfect culmination of all these shows we've been doing about how important it is to take a risk and to stay true to who you are and how those things pay off in terms of allowing your business to grow quickly without it getting totally out of control. Mm-hmm. So thank you for being so honest about your, your business uh, plans. Oh, um, <laughs> before we go, we have some quick rapid fire questions so you oh. can turn off your like super pro business okay. brain and just relax. <laughs> so the first one is what's the very first website you load in the morning? Oh my gosh. Facebook. Yeah. Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Matt? Uh, Gawker. Is that terrible that I Ooh, said that? That feels old school It now. does feel I old like school, that. yeah. <laughs> what is the person or a person you both look up to when time is tough? Like, you're familiar with that phrase, like, what would so-and-so do? Who's your WW person? Oh, I'm oddly obsessed with Danny Meyer and the way he grew his business. Very good choice. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I don't know. I mean, I You I could don't say know. Matt Lewis. Yeah, no. <laughs> that would definitely not be it. But I have to pass on that one. We'll pass. All right. What's a brand that each of you can't get enough of? Heath Ceramics. Oh, my. They yeah. take it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, same. I love I, Heath Ceramics. I just want to cover myself in Heath Ceramics. Good one. Not, yeah. a, not a bad way to go. Yeah. I'd love to be covered in <laughs> uh, What's your favorite Instagram feed or trend? Oh, I know you have a bunch. And I don't want to take any of yours. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. Go first. I'm just trying to remember the name. 
right, Matt, you start. Do you have a trend? Um, I don't have a trend, but I, um, I obviously I love your feed. I'm also kind of like I love Deb's at Smitten Kitchen. I love the way she doesn't always just post food, and it's like these beautiful beach scenes. I don't know. I, I, it's kind of unexpected. You know who I love, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm having a little renaissance with her right now, but with the Wednesday Chef, I love her feed. Like, I think it's just... Louisa Weiss. Yeah, Louisa Weiss. I think it's just honest and pretty, and I don't know. I, 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 I'm enjoying that a lot right now. That's a good one. Um, final question. What's a trend, a style, a designer, or a brand that you hope makes it big this year? What do you want to see more of in the world? Oh, that's a hard question. Hmm. It can be as simple as artisanal loaves that are very sexy. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I would love to see, I mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar um, with uh, Chad at uh, Tartine, but he has this amazing kind of um, ancient grains loaf. And for some reason, it's sort of kind of making its way across the U.S. to New York. I would love to see more bread in New York and not be afraid of gluten so much. I mean, I understand gluten allergies and I have several friends with them, but I would love to kind of embrace it again. Yeah, and along that vein, I'm Matt knows how excited I am. We're going to have um, toast at the new at the new bakery, so I'm really <laughs> excited. For, I love toast, and I've always loved toast, and I love that it's having this thing right having now, this, this moment. So I'm super excited about the toast program at Baked. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to leave us all today with a quote from Aleister Crowley about change and about growth, and um, it goes something like this. The joy of life consists in the exercise of one's energies, continual growth, constant change, the enjoyment of every new experience. To stop means simply to die. The eternal mistake of mankind is to set up an attainable ideal. And I think that's really what you guys have embodied. You are always raising the bars for yourself. And whether or not you're a bakery or a blogger, I think you guys are a wonderful influence in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this second edition monster mashup of After the Jump. For the extended versions of these episodes, check out heritageradionetwork.org or subscribe to After the Jump on iTunes. I'm Liz Smith for heritageradionetwork.org.